Welcome to the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network podcast, everyone. Uh, I'm here with Conchetta Perot from Survivors Voices and Dan Robotham from the McPin Foundation. Um, and we're going to talk in the next 10 minutes or so about involving survivors of abuse in research. How survivor activists can turn the pain of what's happened to them into power that changes things. And we're also going to talk about the research prioritisation work that's happening within this new mental health network. Um, but first of all, I'm going to get Conchetta and Dan to just briefly introduce themselves. Over to you, Conchetta. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm an independent survivor researcher um, and an associate with King's College London and the University of Bristol. Um, I'm also, I wear two hats. I'm also the director of Survivors Voices, which is a um, peer-led community that's been around for about 18 years, um, supporting one another peer-to-peer. -peer. And in the last three years, we've been slowly developing our capacity in terms of survivor research, survivor-led research, and um, have conducted a small project with Kings, which I can talk a bit more about maybe in a moment, Andre. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks, Conchetta. Really good to get you on the podcast today. And Dan? Um, I'm Dan Robotham. I'm the Deputy, Deputy Director at the McPin Foundation. Um, I've got quite a lot of experience of, of what you might call um, service user involvement in research, in, in the, particularly in the mental health field. Um, so this is actually quite a new topic to me. So it's, it's really exciting to be, to be working with Conchetta and with, with the network, really. Um, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, the process of, of research prioritisation, which is something that McPin has done in the past as well. Brilliant, thank you. Yes, so as, as someone who's worked in mental health for about 20 years, I've kind of seen the public and patient involvement agenda rise up and I've seen all the user-led research and survivor-led research and the co-production. You know, these words are very much buzzwords. Everyone says they're doing it, but are they really? <laughs> um, so let's, let's start with Conchetta and your work, which focuses on involving survivors of abuse in research. So tell us a bit about that and how that's different from service user involvement generally in mental health. Well, in some ways it isn't different, but in, in other ways it is. So um, not all people who experience um, abuse, and when we, when we talk about abuse and survivors' voices, we're very inclusive. We um, you know, welcome the involvement and of people with the whole spectrum of abuse, uh, be that physical, emotional, sexual, um, in childhood and in adulthood. Um, but of course, for many people, those simple categories, if you like, those research categories overlap hugely because we don't experience our abuse in categories. We experience them as we live them. And for many people, it's multiple um, abuses. So the population that we, we work with and um, who are our community are people who have experienced um, any form of abuse, but service users, um, if it was a Venn diagram, of, there is a huge overlap because mental health and the impact of abuse on mental health is obviously central and fundamental, uh, but not everyone who experiences abuse goes on to use services. In fact, probably a huge proportion don't either because they've gone near services and have had bad experiences or because those services just aren't available. So we're talking about distinct populations but very overlapping ones. And the, the message you often hear from survivor researchers in mental health is a very empowering 
um, strong voice of people who have, I, I guess, just kind of turned their lives around in a sense and taken back the power um, and done something incredibly positive from something very traumatic and difficult. Um, it strikes me that in a kind of survivor life story, that must be just such a, a powerful change of, of direction for them. Yeah, and if you, I don't know if you're aware of the work of Judith Herman, but she, she actually talks about survivor activism as a distinct stage of recovery from trauma. And I think um, a lot of us in survivor's voice, is not everyone, because we would say that for someone just to turn up at one of our gatherings, you know, we've just had one of our gatherings on Sunday um, of our community, for people just to even put their foot through the door is a form of activism because it takes an awful lot of courage to break silence um, of, of any type of abuse, but particularly if you've experienced abuse in your formative years with attachment figures, to speak up about that, even to yourself, let alone to uh, another group of people is huge. But for some of us, we take that a step further um, and that's part of our own healing journey, which is to turn our pain into power by wanting to be involved in speaking um, more publicly or maybe if not speak, speaking publicly in putting our voices into research that begins to change the way things are done or putting our voices to campaigning. So um, it's a fundamental part of recovery to find your voice and to regain your power when it's been taken from you because all abuse, whatever type of abuse we're talking about has at its core the abuse of power, the violation of boundaries, and the silencing of people. How do you make sure that that kind of involvement is safe and isn't re-traumatising for people? I think that's the million dollar question. Um, and they, you know, I think that's one of the things that often stops um, institutions of varying types from engaging meaningfully with survivors because there is a real fear of um, opening Pandora's box and of re-traumatizing and that can actually be experienced by some of us and I would include myself in this as another form of silencing because someone is so frightened of re-traumatizing me that they they won't even have the conversation with me um, and so safety is, is fundamental and we, we have a charter, which I can talk a bit more about in a mi minute if you want, but the first principle in our charter is about safety. And we, one of the things that we say all the time is to work very, very relationally um, with very, lots of dialogue, slow, attentive listening, which, which is good for everyone, survivor and non-survivor. And that often goes against our organizational agendas uh, where we're all running at hundred miles an hour. So there's something about dialogue, there's something about being very relational. So one of the things that I request as much as possible when I'm having meetings as a survivor researcher is can we do teleconferences with video on so that we, I can see your face, I can um, monitor if I'm feeling triggered by looking in your eyes and actually seeing that you're smiling at me. Um, so there's a lot of kind of things that help us create safety. And I think a real practical building block for researchers is to have survivor, survivors such as myself or other organizations that are working in this field to come in and talk to you about um, what makes us feel safe and what doesn't and to have some education particularly around um, triggering and the fight, fly, flee, freeze, appease response that 
that is so uh, strong for many survivors. Uh, we spend a lot of our time monitoring for threat uh, in interpersonal relationships because of our histories. And the way we run projects and the way we run research needs to take this into account. And so training around that, I think, is really fundamental, as is slow, careful dialogue and working very collaboratively and relationally. We hear often these days about the iatrogenic harm of services um, and people saying that they are re-traumatised by their services, by their mental health services or their domestic abuse services. Um, but it strikes me that the research system itself um, is also problematic. I wanted to bring Dan in on this. This is a, um, a really difficult area, surely, to involve survivors in these kind of research exercises. How, how do you see that working within the network and broadly? Um, I think Conchetta nailed it really. I think slowly and carefully. Um, and that's something I think is really underrated quality in, in, in research. I think a lot of the you know, research institutions, research infrastructure is done on sort of work plans and, and deadlines and things like that. And obviously these things are important and you know, you've got to make sure you, you get the work done at the right time in order to influence things. But at the same time, if, if you do sometimes need to take a step back and sort of bring in other people and, and, and have a and, and get expertise when you yourself may have some blind spots or you may not know something um, that other people may know, then you want, you want to involve people and you want to make sure that you're involving as, as, as wide a group of people as possible to try and ensure that you get the right answers. And, and I think too often, and uh, we blunder into things in, in the research world. Um, we we, we pl plan things to get a grant or whatever, and then it, we have to deliver it really quickly and, 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 and the more subtle, nuanced elements kind of go by the wayside. And, and I think the, these networks actually give a chance to do some more meaningful involvement work and they, they, they because of the way they're structured and because of the way that funding can be allocated at various times and because of the way that networks and um, personal networks can be developed it, it it gives an opportunity i think for you know potentially for for small organizations to get funding for research in particular for user-led organizations why, why is it so important that research into um, violence and abuse and mental health is led by survivors? Thank you for, for asking that question because it really, for me, it lends itself to uh, one of the things that motivates us as survivors' voices. You know, we, we have drawn a lot of strength from the service user survivor movement and, you know, the impact that, you know, People like Diana Rose have, you know, Peter Beresford have had um, on the research scene, and we also draw our inspiration from disability rights movement, um, and you know, the women's movement. And as a small organisation that is completely run by abuse survivors, my answer to that question is: please don't do research about us without us. That's borrowing from the disability rights movement, nothing about us without us. It doesn't make sense to be doing all these 
huge programs with millions of pounds when we sit in our peer support groups for 18 years and the same issues come around again and again and again around what's not working and what does work. Um, so it's, it's core. And, you know, we could be sitting here in 50 years time asking the same questions, or we can take the involvement of people with who are the real experts seriously. And both of you are involved in, in this expert, um, <clears throat> in this group running this research prioritization for the network. I, I'm interested in how you see that working and particularly Conchetta in relation to your survivors voices charter that you mentioned earlier on. Um, do you think the network can run in line with those values? I really hope so. I think it's a work in progress. The, the, the dialogue is only just beginning. Um, and it's begin, beginning from a standing point of um, the people leading the network saying, it is absolutely our intention that we work in line with the charter. Um, so the charter, the charter, just so that the people listening are aware, is um, we, we applied for a tiny grant, and we're talking a tiny grant, which we got from the Wellcome Foundation, to run a completely survivor-led project, which we did two years ago. Um, so the whole process was conceptualized, run, analyzed, and um, the outcome produced by 14 survivors who met for hours on end, um, <clears throat> talking through every detail. And the, the outcome of that was a charter which has got um, seven principles for ensuring good survivor engagement and then practice standards. And it's based on the idea that we, everything that we do needs to look unlike and feel the opposite of abuse. That might kind of sound a bit odd, but we're basically saying that it's very easy for any of our human systems, be that research institutions, um, GP practices, therapists, police, it's very easy for systems to, ver to inadvertently replicate the dynamics of abuse unless you do the opposite intentionally. So what we did with our charter was we operationalized what it looks and feels like to do the opposite of abuse. And our principles are around safety, empowerment, amplifying the voice of survivors within the way we do things, promoting self-care, being accountable and transparent, being liberating in the way that we do things, and also bringing a sense of creativity and joy into the work because abuse is so soul-destroying and corrosive that, you know, it's a conversation killer. If you go to a party and they ask you what you do and you say, oh, I work in the field of survivors, you know, you know end of conversation. <laughs> um, so we, we wanted to actually do the opposite of that and bring a sense of creativity and joy into how we do research or how we do projects. So all those principles are outlined in our charter. And um, so, you know, in terms of how that impacts the network, we are, we're basically starting a process of dialogue of seeing what that means from how we do a research prioritization exercise to how grants are issued to how the activities of the network are monitored and held to account. Um, so that's a work in progress, really. Mm -hmm.